The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be investigating what's behind the rise of gang violence across Europe. We'll be discussing Nigel Farage and the debanking crisis, and we'll be learning about the joys of paddle tennis. First up, in the magazine this week, we look at the recent riots in France. The Spectator's Douglas Murray argues that French racism is not the problem, but a significant chunk of the unintegrated immigrant population is. He joins us now alongside Dr. Rahib Hassan, author of Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities. Douglas, could you take our listeners through your argument? Well, to begin with, it's simply to do with part of the reporting of the appalling events in France in recent days, which assumes that the rioting, looting, burning and much more is a response to, a genuine response were to uh, this police arrest and shooting of a 17-year-old who was joyriding at the time. And I think even to do this, and the BBC and many other mainstream media outlets have done this, is to miss the problem. We could have a conversation until the end of all time about exactly how the police in France or anywhere else should detain somebody who's joyriding, whether or not they should be able to use lethal force, and much more. None of which explains why a significant chunk of the population in France should, for instance, decide to respond to such an event by breaking into the local Louis Vuitton raiding the handbag section. It seems to be taken as read by much of the non-French media that this is in somehow a, an eruption of genuine feeling based on on a terrible police event. And I think by this point, it should be obvious that there's much more going on than that. And that in any case, France, like America, cannot be one bad police interaction at any point away from social unrest on this scale. Rocky, what what did you make of the recent riots in France? In in The Spectator this week, it pointed out that the problem is largely the unintegrated ethnic minority in France. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I I think that France has very serious issues when it comes to matters of integration I think that much of the commentary surrounding the riots has been somewhat suspect. But I think if we're having a broader discussion about matters of integration, what's the best way to integrate ethnic and racial minorities? I've always been of the view that the UK has been that bit more successful than France when it comes to integrating its minorities. Many of France's ideals, the ideals of the Fifth Republic, are admirable. But the reality is that core constitutional principle of secularism, licite, 
and also this concept of colorblind egalitarianism, it, it is somewhat incompatible with the existence of racial and religious diversity in a country such as France. And I suspect that there is a mainstream socio-political reluctance to acknowledge what I would consider to be very real forms of racial and religious discrimination because there is that puritanical commitment to protecting the so-called indivisible republic. While in the UK, I would actually argue that maybe in recent times we've obsessed too much over matters of race and identity. But we, I would say that whether it's in terms of our race relations legislation, qualities legislation, or the fact that we have relatively flexible labour markets, we do have a more effective framework when it comes to integrating our ethnic and racial minorities. And that there's also research which shows that when it comes to trust in democratic institutions, law and order institutions, civil society, altruistic behaviours and attitudes towards fellow citizens, and indeed more broadly national identity and sense of belonging, the UK traditionally fares better than France when it comes to those range of indicators. And I do think that should be a very important part of the debate. Douglas, in your, in your column, you do discuss some of the parallels between France and the UK. So I wonder, what do you make of Rakim's argument that there's been better integration in the UK than in France? I'm afraid it puts me in mind of something I've heard an awful lot in the last 20 years, which is the who integrates people better game. And I'll tell you what the problem about that is. It always works until the place you cite burns to the ground as well. So we used to say in the UK that after the 2005 riots and burnings in Bonlieu in France, uh, we say, well, we in the UK are so much better at integrating our, our, our minority communities. And then we had the 2011 riots, which just happened and then went away and nobody really worked out what had happened because nobody wanted to. But for a time, we then stopped saying the British model was so great. But we used to look to Scandinavia, it's a Scandinavian model. And then they just had a massive upsurge in grenade attacks. So in other words, what I'm saying is every integration model that's held up as being better, you can do. I mean, I did definitely pros and cons. I mean, for instance, we have less ghettoization of communities in the UK than they do in France. But on the other hand, what I try to point out in my piece is that isn't actually the problem. I, if millions of people move from North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa into France, they are likely to find some problems in the country they arrive in, just as if millions of French men and women moved from Paris and Marseille to go and live in Algiers and in Morocco, for instance, they would find a certain number of problems in, in, in integrating. Maybe some of them would want to integrate. Maybe some of them wouldn't. Maybe some would want to learn Arabic. Maybe some of them wouldn't. Maybe some locals would resent them. Maybe some wouldn't. Maybe law and order wouldn't always be perfect. Maybe it would. My point is, it's not the problem fundamentally of the host society. It is the problem with the fact that millions of people have moved into countries like France because they want to be there, but they want the benefits of being there without being of there. And that is the problem underlining these attacks, as so many before. And it is the thing roiling French politics at the deepest level is, have we made a catastrophic error in recent decades by even assuming we could integrate millions of people who come here? No, I, I think that I agree with Douglas in that there are people who have hyper-idealistic views when it comes to matters of integration. 
and and I also think that as, as I said before, I said that these core ideals of the French Republic are admirable, and and there is obviously a discussion to be had now in France in terms of matters of integration, cohesion, and national identity. And and I wouldn't I, I wouldn't want to be in the business of romanticizing Britain's how do you call it multicultural integrationist framework either i think we saw last year and this was something i discussed last time i was on the spectator podcast the leicester disorders which were primarily between hindu and muslim youths especially in eastern parts of the city including belgrave so i wouldn't be in the business of saying that the british model is flawless it is far from perfect but i would say that it is better than what i would consider to be the french this sort of rigid model of secular universalism, so-called colorblind egalitarianism. I do think that with the 2011 England riots, I was 21 at the time, I did feel that the country's response was that bit better. I know that Douglas doesn't sound very impressed with the national response at all to those riots, but there was a debate surrounding race. So you even had politicians like David Lammy also talking about the role of fatherlessness in inner city communities, especially within black British communities. So there was that discussion about youth um, unemployment as well and the, the negative impact of family instability. While in France, you've had President Macron, he's resorted to talking about gaming, the negative impact of gaming on, on the French youth. So I do think that the national response to the 2011 England riots were that bit more nuanced and sophisticated when compared to some of the responses I've seen among the French political establishment to the riots that we've seen uh, very recently. I have to say, I'm 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 charmed by Rakib uh, suggesting that David Lammy can uh, start a debate on anything, but it's a lovely idea. Um, but the but I may, if I may say so very quickly as a footnote to that point, we actually at the Spectator ran a minority report from somebody on the government commission after the 2011 riots, who had been put on to the commission and said that actually the commission looking into the riots decided at the beginning what the problem couldn't be. And they decided that the problem and said as much to the fellow commissioners, the problem could not be anything to do with race and it could not be to do with fatherlessness. So one of my points about this is, is it where we deliberately hobble ourselves from ever actually arriving at, at a solution because we just decide in advance what the problems cannot be. And that's, I think, as much a British thing as it has been a French thing. But to get back to the to the core point I wanted to make, and I mentioned this in the piece because obviously, as, as Raki knows, I mean, you know, we're all looking around for like, where is doing something better? Where is doing it worse? Is, you know, and so on. I give the example in my piece of something which I'm stunned that the British media, stunned in a way and, and unsurprised in another, perhaps that's better to put it, that the media has not reported more, which was that we learned last week that a woman in a park in Skegness was brutally raped by a man who arrived illegally into the UK just 40 days earlier. And I say in my piece, this is the sort of thing, of course, that's happened in France. Let's add, add the necessary caveat, not all illegal migrants are rapists. But if you don't know who's in your country and you haven't bothered to find out and you haven't done any checks because you don't have checks, because you just let people in, that's the sort of thing that happens. Now, that in turn usually leads to some local upset generally speaking, people are against people coming into their area and then dragging a woman into the bushes and raping her. But politicians in Britain, as in France, have almost nothing to say about this. 
Iraqi is so right to give this example of Macron talking about gaming. But there is a displacement activity going on as so often. Because what would Macron, what ought he to say? In my opinion, what he ought to say is something he cannot say because he would indict himself and all of his predecessors in the political establishment in France, which is we've badly mucked up this whole thing for years. In Britain, no politician has picked this up. All of the, the usual front benchers like Jess Phillips in Labour who tut tut and shake their heads as the Home Secretary says, maybe the British taxpayer can't afford for all time to put all illegal migrants coming to the country into hotels. Whilst they sit there tutting their heads about that, they have nothing to say about the rape of a woman in Skegness last week by a man who arrived 40 days earlier. Why? Because they encourage people to come illegally to Britain. They encourage it. They believe we shouldn't have strict borders. Why did the Conservative Party in government not pick it up? Because they're in government and they've overseen this process. This is on their hands. Why does the press not go bigger with it? Why are they not fulminating editorials? Because the press fears the public. They don't want to see the public turn out on the streets. Because if they do, then the media in Britain has to do what they did to the crowds in Liverpool the other month and say that concerned citizens who don't like people being raped are in fact far-right Nazi mobs who must be attacked by left-wing anti-fascist In other words, everybody is terrified about actually saying the truth in this because the truth indicts almost everybody. And just, just to finish on, can I ask you both about the, the rise of the anti-migration parties across Europe, which Jonathan Miller points out in his piece are, are doing quite well at the moment. But he also makes the point that the Sweden Democrats, who are now part of a governing coalition in Sweden, have also had actually little little to say on the matter really so Douglas what parties are offering kind of answers and do any of them seem kind of plausible to you the, the answer in terms of those mass, those sort of anti-mass migration parties they're mainly a mess they mainly uh, haven't had experience of government coming to government don't know how it works and, and much more and then you have the perpetual problem in Europe there are some people there are some nasty things in the woodshed particularly on the continent I would say to the far right and that will always taints it even politicians like uh, Salvini in Italy come into power stop uh, the illegal movement and are then prosecuted for doing so uh, look at Inge Stoiberg former immigration minister in Denmark who certainly isn't a right-wing populist in anti-immigration but, but you know party was from the mainstream conservative party in in Denmark did what any reasonable politician should do in stopping the illegal flow into her country in 2015 and was prosecuted for doing so. In other words, this whole thing is an even bigger mess because the people who are trying to address it get stopped from addressing it. And the parties to the side that try to come in and address it have all of their own logistical and other problems. And so really what happens is that the problem just gets keeps getting unaddressed and unaddressed, which in my view means the problem continues to get worse and worse. Look at our own country. You get a conservative government that talks about limiting migration, bringing it down to the tens of thousands, which isn't so crazy. That was what it was in the 1990s. And it oversees a tripling of net migration. What is anyone to say about failure on such an extraordinary level? Rakib, do you want to add to that? 
I, I think that the, the rise of anti-immigration parties is, is largely because of the failure of so-called mainstream centre-right parties to tackle immigration or and, and to engage in, in a critical and honest matter with issues associated with integration, cohesion and identity. I think that when you look in the you look at the UK context, I think the most recent net migration figures were six hundred six thousand, which is truly unprecedented. Now, of course, you can talk about one-off humanitarian factors involving uh, Ukrainians fleeing the Kremlin's war machine, uh, Hong Kongers escaping from Chinese state tyranny, including the national security laws. But more generally, what what we have, particularly in the UK, if I could focus on our own country, is that there's an addiction. To high levels of immigration is treated as an economic lever, a desperate one, which, as, as some politicians claim, helps to engineer economic growth, except that we've been a very low growth economy and a high immigration one for some time. So I, I think that when you're looking more broadly across much of the continent, it's probably a failure of mainstream centre-right politics to critically engage with matters of immigration, integration and cohesion, which uh, anti immigration parties, if you call them hard right parties, benefit from that. Oh, but if I may add one thing to what Rakib said, of course, it's also a failure of the centre-left. Remember, it used to be the case that centre-left trade unionists and others would say, even aside from the illegal migration, which does nothing at all to help uh, the economy, nothing at all, even if you talk about legal migration, all legal migration from the third world of developing countries undercuts the labor unions in the UK. So there used to be a totally reasonable left-wing, center-left, anti-mass immigration movement in the UK. It's totally disappeared. It's been replaced by the we should be the home for anyone in the world who needs a home party, aka Labour. They've let down their voters too. Thank you, Douglas and Rakib. Next up, in the magazine this week, journalist Ivo Dorney and The Spectator's associate editor Toby Young discuss the de-banking crisis. This is, of course, in light of the news that Nigel Farage, along with other politically exposed persons, have had their bank accounts closed. Ivo and Toby join us now. Toby, can you start by explaining to listeners what de-banking actually is and a little bit about why you know so much about it? So de-banking is the name I've given to when a payment services provider, which is either a bank or a payment processor like PayPal, closes a customer's account for political reasons, because they've exercised their right to lawful free speech, not because they've engaged in fraud or been convicted of a crime, or not because they've appeared as a politically exposed person on some global database. Debanking, I confined to describing people who are losing their accounts for purely political reasons. And um, I know about it because I was debanked um, in September of last year. PayPal closed my account, it closed the account of the Free Speech Union and the Daily Skeptic, the two companies I control, all within 15 minutes of each other, all without any notice at all. And all because we had supposedly breached the acceptable use policy, which is a voluminous policy, no more detail than that, so impossible to appeal. I tried appealing it internally, got absolutely nowhere. I eventually appealed it by talking about it in public and getting various MPs and peers to write to Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, then the business secretary, who then 
made a fuss about it, and PayPal eventually restored all three accounts. Um, but most people don't have that opportunity. Um, and it's incredibly widespread, much more widespread than you'd think. So there's a piece in the Times, um, there's a piece in the Times on Wednesday morning saying that there's a Facebook group called NatWest Closed My Account, and it has over 10,000 members, and that's just one high street bank. Either you also write in this week's issue about the term politically exposed person because you discovered that you were indeed a politically exposed person. Can you tell listeners about your story? Yeah, well, I, I was literally arriving at Mexico City Airport and as I was waiting for my luggage in the baggage arrivals hall, I saw a foreign exchange place, so I thought I'd need some local currency and I went to try and change some currency. And for some reason, there was a great kerfuffle. They looked at my passport, they came back to me, and then they asked me to sign, uh, to sign another form. They'd already given me one. And the new form said at the bottom, are you a politically exposed person? Um, and I thought, well, no, I'm not. So I said no. And then they looked at that, and they looked again at my passport, and they said, well, I'm afraid the computer says you are. And... Um, which left me um, rather bemused. They then, very nice people in the foreign exchange space said, don't worry, we're a government exchange dealer, but if you go out into the arrivals hall, you'll be plenty of people who'd be happy to change your money. So the, the issue was resolved for me that way. But I suppose there are some parallels with Toby's debanking thing. Uh, I mean, I suppose I am politically exposed only in so far as I happen to be brother-in-law of a politician. But I, I, I'm i not a politician myself, so it seemed to me I had no option. I, there was some database somewhere which said this about me, and I found that rather irritating. The Free Speech Union may be able to help. I don't know if you know about the case of Finsbury Park Mosque, but Finsbury Park Mosque uh, had its account closed by HSBC and then couldn't open another account. This was um, several years ago. And it discovered that it had been flagged by one of these risk databases, Thomson Reuters Financial Risk, it was called. And they discovered that this database had um, said that the Finsbury Park Mosque was linked to terrorist activities. And uh, Finsbury Park Mosque was able to secure an apology and then £10,000 in damages. Thomson Reuters Financial Risk later became World Check Risk Management, owned by a company called Refinitiv, which was um, sold by the Blackstone Group and Thomson Reuters to the London Stock Exchange Group for £27 But that's where the banks are getting globally this information about who is a politically exposed person. And of course, uh, that's a very broad definition, and it captures even people like you, because they are unbelievably risk averse. But lots of people are finding themselves flagged on these databases and for once, being PEPs. And once you appear on one of these databases, is there any way of removing yourself from it? Or are you well, permanently on it? Well, I think Prince the... Park Mosque succeeded, but that was a laborious process. Mm. Um, you can complain. Well, first of all, if you have been flagged as a PEP, you can submit a subject access request to your bank and find out what agency has flagged you. And then you can submit the equivalent of an SAR if it's based in New York and find out why it is they flagged you. And if you've been flagged on false pretexts, then you can potentially sue them. I mean, the first thing you could do is ask them to remove your name from the database. They might cooperate, they might not. Generally, the only way to get them to do anything is to take legal action. Neither. obviously your experience was in Mexico, but have you experienced 
don't see anything else perhaps in the UK where it's been sort of clear to you that you are now categorised as a politically exposed person. No, I have, I, and it hasn't. Um, I haven't come across it before. Um, but it also seems to me that it's rather like, I mean, I think you have a legal right, do you not, to know what your credit credit rating is. And it seems to me that the very least the regulation should say is that anybody who is told that they are a politically exposed person should be entitled to know why they are considered such, who considers one such, and what they're doing about it. Because um, if it does have potential problems for you, then you should be able to know on what grounds you've been selected, so to speak. And Toby, towards the end of your piece, you talk about what tactics can be deployed by people to sort of counter this. What What do you think is the best approach, aside from obviously well, trying to get yourself removed from the list? Yes, well... Um, the Free Speech Union has been lobbying um, the Treasury for the past nine months to change the payment regulations to make it more difficult for payment services providers to debank people. And we understand that there is going to be an announcement by Andrew Griffith, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, shortly, within a couple of weeks, saying that they are going to change the regulations, both to make banks more transparent about why they're closing people's accounts, as well as including a principle in the payment regulation saying you cannot close people's accounts simply because they're exercising their right to lawful free speech. And if people's accounts continue to be closed for political reasons after the regulations have been changed, that will make it easier for people both to complain to the Financial Conduct Authority, complain to the Financial Ombudsman and sue the banks if necessary. As I'd understood it, the reason for it being created, this concept, was was to stop money laundering. Now, I was trying to change $200, which doesn't seem to me a sort of significant money laundering amount of money to change. But if that was the grounds for it coming in, it seems to me absurd that, you know, if you're very remotely connected to somebody who's in politics, and most people may find themselves so, you know, that almost everybody could be put down as a politically exposed person. So, so obviously, clearly, this is a nonsense and something has to be done about it. It's terrible uh, to find myself on the same side as Toby. I feel a little uncomfortable <laughs> myself, either, but Highly politically exposed. You're, you're, you're not alone because Dominic Lawson wrote a piece for the Mail on Monday in which he said that his daughter had been flagged as a politically exposed person, presumably because she's the granddaughter of Nigel Lawson. And um, Hugo Rifkin wrote a piece in The Times earlier this week saying he'd been flagged because he's the son of Malcolm Rifkin. So however tenuously connected you are to a politician, you're now a politically exposed person and will have difficulty opening a bank account. It's absurd. It is absurd. But it does emerge, does it not, that Mr Farage might have had other reasons why he was no longer allowed to continue at Coots. Well, I think in Nigel's defence, the reason that Coots came up with, and incidentally, they were breaching all kinds of regulations in leaking that information to the BBC, and he's going to sue them for it. But I think um, they said, well, he didn't have sufficient funds in his account. And he pointed out, well, he he hadn't met the, their, you know, extremely high thresholds numerous times in the 43 years he's banked with them, but they've only decided in the last three months to close his account because he's failing to meet those thresholds. In addition, numerous people have contacted the BBC since to say, I'm not meeting those thresholds. They haven't cancelled me. And we do know that there is a pattern of um, debanking people connected to the Brexit party. So Claire Fox, former Brexit MEP, she had her account closed. Another former Brexit MEP had his account closed. So there's a re- we, we were contacted a couple of days ago by a former high-ranking official in the Brexit party, just been informed by his high street bank that his accounts are going to be closed. So there is a pattern here which suggests that the reason Coots came up with for debanking Nigel was BS. 
Thank you, Ivo and Toby. And finally, Wimbledon might be on, but it is Paddle that William Skidelsky is more excited about in his piece for the magazine this week, as he charts the rise of the increasingly popular sport. He joins us now, along with Tia Norton, the British female number one paddle player. William, could you start by explaining for listeners who might not be aware exactly what paddle is? I'll do my best. It's played on a court that's smaller than a tennis court, particularly less long. The width is a bit it's a bit less wide, but it's not that big a difference. And it's got, unlike in tennis, where you've got plenty of space, you know, beyond the lines, uh, beyond the baseline and beyond the sidelines. In paddle, you've got walls immediately, rather like squash, which go all around the court. It's got a net in the middle, like a tennis court. And this obviously means that you can't run, you know, beyond the limits of the court. And what happens is the ball bounces and it can bounce against the walls. And you, like in squash, you can play it off the walls. Although the basic action of the sport is similar to tennis in that you are aiming to clear the net and have the ball land within the court on the other side. And it's a, it's a relatively recent game, isn't it? But as you say in your piece, it's, it's rapidly growing in popularity. So, so how did your own obsession with paddle begin? Well, I'm, I'm very new to it. I've, I've long been a tennis player, as I said in the piece, a somewhat uh, obsessive tennis player. And I thought nothing could ever change that. But I... I first came across Paddle. Well, I'd heard of it, heard about it. I'd seen this crazy game on the internet that looked, that looked quite incomprehensible and extraordinary. I was in holiday. I was in Spain uh, last October and there was a court in the hotel where we were playing. So I just knocked about with my family and immediately thought I wasn't playing properly. We weren't playing matches, but I immediately thought this is a lot of fun. Then I increasingly in tennis circles, people are always talking about Paddle this club is building a court, this person goes off and plays paddle somewhere. And I just thought, I have to try this. So I joined the club in East London, Stratford, and signed up for a taster session. This was really in the last two or three months. And now and now I'm playing as much as I can, and I'm completely addicted. Tia, you're the British number one in paddle. Can you tell us, first of all, how you started to play paddle, and then a little bit about how when you realised it was going to be more than a hobby for you. Yeah, so I actually uh, started playing paddle when I was 12 years old. So I originally come from a tennis background. So I started playing tennis at the age of seven. And it was actually one of my old tennis coaches who invited me down to a club in Birmingham, which is, well, unfortunately, it's not there anymore, but it was one of the first clubs in the country. So I tried it out. And a few weeks later, they were holding GB trials for the junior team to go to the Mexico World Championships. So I then went along decided to go to these trials and I actually got selected for the under-14s to compete in Mexico. So yeah, I went to Mexico and managed to reach the quarterfinals after after playing for such a short amount of time. And I came home and was still competing in tennis and paddle together. But my parents were like, right, let's let's choose a sport. Let's pick one. So I decided to play paddle. And then paddle is a lot bigger in Spain so it required me traveling there basically on weekends so I would fly on a Friday after school and then train there for the weekend and then come home Monday morning and then go straight to school from the airport but yeah I mean I've managed to I've had the privilege of representing Great Britain every year since I've started playing and it was in the, the summer of 2021 when 
I decided that I wanted to take it up professionally. And what is it that you love about the sport? It was the the social aspect of it for me that completely completely turned my head. In tennis, there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of parents getting involved when, well, from my personal experience anyway. At the end of the day, I was a kid who just wanted to, to enjoy a sport that they were playing. And yeah, some of the experiences that I've had with paddle, I definitely wouldn't have had had it not been for the sport. And William, Tia said just now that the sport's a lot bigger in Spain than it is here. Why do you think it's taken a bit longer to catch on here in the UK than it has in other European countries? And do you see a future where it might even become as popular as as tennis in this country? That's an interesting question. I don't know at the moment what has determined the take-up. I mean, you have Spain, you have Portugal and Italy. That I, I, I think it's quite big now in all three countries, bigger than in England. I think, you know, in, in, in sort of quite warm places uh, where there's a lot of sunshine, it's an outdoor game typically in those countries. And there's something you can see that just, you know, of an evening playing and it really makes sense. And it's probably a bit easier to build courts in England. You know, there's tighter planning and so forth. But it's very big in Sweden as well, I know. So why exactly it took off there so much, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a, a good question. I I think playing-wise, it really is coming up, actually, and, and becoming a rival to tennis. You know, I've met so many people in my brief kind of experience with it, so many people saying, you know, I used to play tennis and this is just a lot more fun. And that seems to be replicated in many, many countries. So so there really does seem to be a challenge there, which other racket sport rivals to tennis, squash, ping pong, you know, they're, they're always going to be very niche. They're never going to, you just know they're never going to come up in this way. Paddle is different. In, which, in what ways do you think it is superior to tennis in terms of the skill of the game? Well, as I said in my article, it's, there are fewer gaps. There's a lot of downtime in tennis. Uh, between points, you're picking the ball up, then you cross ends every two games. In paddle, because it's a smaller space, it's, you don't cross end until the end of the set. The serve is much simpler. It, it, it comes at you much faster. And when you have that experience, tennis suddenly starts to seem really slow. The other big point, I would make is tennis can be a game dominated by a big serve, powerful topspin grand strokes, can get a bit a little bit monotonous. In paddle, there's there's a lot more court craft, hand skills, volleying is much more important. So all those in a way there's sort of bits of tennis which I really like, the more creative side of tennis, which is only quite a small part of tennis, is the main meat of paddle. And that's that's incredibly fun and exciting to me and I think to many others. And here in, in William's piece, he mentioned some of Paddle's recent celebrity converts, including Zlatan Abramovich, Lionel Messi and Andy Murray. Do you think that that kind of celebrity interest is, is helping drive its newfound popularity? 100%. I think it's increasing the exposure to the sport, which is what it needs. At the end of the day, the more people who see it, the more people who will actually want to try it. And obviously, it is such a new sport in the UK that hopefully the likes of these celebrities getting involved will entice people into thinking, okay, what is this sport? What is happening? If they're playing it, maybe I should actually give it a go. Thank you, Tia and William. And that is everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can pick up a copy of the magazine and read everything we've talked about and plenty more. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.